Let's pray and we'll get to the text. Lord, we come to you now and I just thank you for the sweet opportunity we have to um, dig into Exodus tonight. Uh, I'm thankful that you're a God who is not distant and a God who is not aloof, but a God who is very much involved with his people. And tonight I'm thankful for the opportunity that we get to see it even more closely and hear the words out of your mouth on how you are and how you move and what you desire for your people and how long-suffering and forgiving and patient and slow to anger you are. And I pray that we would never take that for granted. As we study the Old Testament and look at things written a long time ago, I pray that we would not lose sight of the application to our lives. Um, I've trusted you in the preparation of this and I trust you in the delivery of it, that you would guide us according to your spirit that today, in light of what we read in this text, that we would keep in step with the Spirit and that we would aim to put your glory on display, that we would edify one another by way of reminder and by way of speaking truth. We love you very much, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we considered Israel moving forward from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. So they've been at the base of Mount Sinai for a while, and God has said, y'all, it's time to move forward. Um, And this was shortly after the golden calf uh, um, mess uh, that happened. And so we see that they had the opportunity given to them to move on from the base of Mount Sinai to the promised land, but it said that the words that the Lord shared were disastrous. So what, what made what the Lord shared disastrous last week? Yeah, he wasn't going with them. Now, why is the Lord not going with them why is it a disastrous thing for the Lord not to go with Israel? There were his people. How does God's presence affect his people? Protected? Guided? Yeah. Protected, guided, what else? How else does God's presence affect his people? Sorry? Provisions. Yeah, lots of provisions. Thank you all. Terrified by his presence? Ground shakes and smoke comes out. Terrifying. What else did his presence do to them last week that we saw in the text that made them what? Worship, rest, and what else? They were, starts with a D. Distinct. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, they were distinct. They were, they were um, different. So safe, guided, distinct. His presence gave them rest. So to say it on the, in the flip manner, his presence... Not being there means they don't have the guidance they need. They don't have the rest they need. They don't have the strength that they need. They don't have the provision that they need. And they are not distinct as they should be by God's design. And so them moving forward without God really wasn't an option. And thankfully, um, Moses saw that clearly. And and they saw that and they were able to mourn over that. Now, what was the difference between the tabernacle and the tent of meeting? Location? Yeah, that's right. The, where was the tabernacle supposed to be set up? The center of the camp. Where was the tent of meeting set up? 
outside the camp. And what does this reveal about their relationship with God at this point? Yeah, it revealed that their relationship with God was strained because of their sin. Sin separates us from God. And so uh, Moses is going outside the camp. Now, what was kind of cool, though, because the worshipers, what would they do? How, how were they in, um, brought in and, and encouraged to worship? What, what did that look like? Yeah. Exactly. They saw the pillar of cloud, and it says that they would stand at the door of their tents And they would look and they would see that and it would indicate God's presence and that would cause them to worship. So the presence of God causes people to worship. Now, we closed last week seeing Moses' desire to see God's glory. God's closeness meant something significant to Moses and thereby to the people of Israel. And God's most precious gift to us and the point of the gospel itself is God himself. And so... Um, I wanted to read something from this book. Um, if y'all haven't read it, it's really good. It's called God is the Gospel. If you're wondering what it means to be a Christian and why we share gospel and say sin is bad and you need to be forgiven of that, this is really, really helpful. Um, but on page 121, it talks about God's best gift being eternally enthralled with God. And it says this, This is crucial to see. Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. You ever seen that happen? Someone embraces the good news of the gospel? No hell? Fantastic. Forgiveness? Good. Um, encouragement to walk rightly? Yes. But, but something can happen where you embrace that good news, but you don't embrace the God of the good news. And so it says, many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. There's no sure evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. That's a perfectly natural desire, not a supernatural one. It doesn't take a new heart to want the psychological relief of forgiveness or the removal of God's wrath or the inheritance of God's world. All these things are understandable without any spiritual change. You can want all of them without any spiritual change. You can say, I want wrath to be removed. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want an inheritance. All those can happen and there be no change in the spirit. Those can all be desired in the flesh. You don't need to be born again to want these things. The devils want these things. It is not wrong to want them. Indeed, it is folly not to want them. But the evidence that we have been changed is that we want these things because they bring us to the enjoyment of God. This is the greatest thing Christ died for. This is the greatest good in the good news. Why is that? Because we were made to experience full and lasting happiness from seeing and savoring the glory of God. If our best joy comes from something less, we're idolaters, and God is dishonored. He created us in such a way that his glory is displayed through our joy in it. The gospel of Christ is the good news that at the cost of his son's life, God has done everything necessary to enthrall us with what will make us eternally and ever increasingly happy, namely himself. So if we lose sight of God in the gospel, we lose sight of the purpose of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just new life. It's not just inheritance. It's not just propitiation. The point of all of that is to bring us to God. Um, The question's been asked, if you get to heaven and Jesus isn't there, are you okay with that? And a believer says, no, no, I want to be with my Lord and my Savior and my treasure forever, eternally, not just for 800 years or or a thousand. I want that eternally. We live now um, with an eternal perspective. And, and Colossians says, set your mind on the things above. And Romans says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, because that's how we're, we're moving. We're keeping in 
We're doing things now and moving now in light of eternity. And eternity is with our God. And if it's not with our God, we're fooling ourselves and we're missing the most important part of the gospel. So tonight we're going to continue to enjoy our great God as he reveals himself through the text. So look at Exodus 34. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. I think that's a really funny verse. There, remember the ones which you broke. Um, so we're going to do this again. Uh, be ready. That's funny. Uh, y'all should enjoy that later. When you're reading that later, just enjoy the humor in that verse um, which you broke. Uh, be, ready for, uh, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze opposite that mountain, graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So this is a sort of redo, a do-over, a mulligan, a take-two for the covenant and the commandments. First, in verses 1 through 5, we find this New Testament parallel in 2 Corinthians 3. So take Take to mind and heart what we just read, and now turn over to 2 Corinthians 3. Keep your finger in Exodus 34. We'll go back a couple of times probably over the course of the night. Second Corinthians 3. So we're seeing this covenant, and 2 Corinthians 3 is written by Paul to the church in Corinth to, to sort of hearken back to what's happened on the mountain here on this second go at the covenant and the tablets. And this reiteration of God's love for his people and this encouragement and him showing himself and who he is. But he's wanting us to see that as awesome as this is that happens on, on Mount Sinai again in Exodus 34, that it, it's only a partial thing. Um, and, and we see what, what happens in the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. And so I'm going to read aloud um, uh, verses 1 through 11 uh, first. It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, uh, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now start to see the, the parallels here between the texts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant. That's an encouraging thing there. 
If you ever look and you say, am I competent to be a minister of the new covenant? Am I competent to do the work of ministry? He makes us competent, and he does so by his word. 2 Timothy 3.16, his breed, that word, makes us competent and equipped. Not of the letter, he said, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, this is something that we have to do when we're studying our Old Testament and we're seeing the law and we see, you know, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And you see, I think I read this week, it was over 700 forms of don't do this and do this um, combined. Um, We have to remember we're in Christ now. What we're reading was before Christ and what we live in now is in Christ. And so we got to make sure we balance when we see some of these things, the New Testament with the Old Testament, because some of us might read this and say, I'm a stiff-necked person and there is absolutely no hope for me. There's no way that I could accomplish what he wants me to. But for those on this side of the cross, we're encouraged by Christ and the fact that his righteousness is counted as ours so that we might be accepted by God. So my question is this, in 2 Corinthians 3, what are some of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Feel free to read through it again on your own. The old was written on stone, okay? Now, the new is written by the Spirit. What else? Condemnation, as opposed to what? Righteousness, yeah. That, that, that's, I want that difference, a ministry of condemnation versus a ministry of righteousness. Um, so that's a good difference. What else? What's the other differences between the uh, Old Testament covenant and New Testament covenant? Yeah, one brings death and one brings life. I, I hope y'all are encouraged right now as New Covenant Christians. These are good things. And guess, guess, guess why they exist? Anyone want to take a shot at that one? Jesus, yes. If not for Jesus, it is still a ministry of condemnation. It is still something that brings death. It is still something that's veiled. It is still something that is not fulfilled completely because it's impossible to be fulfilled completely. So as as Christians on this side of the cross, we should read this and be really, really encouraged at how things change for us in Christ. That's really, really good news. You should take joy in that. You should be encouraged by that. And you should remain in that. Because if you get into a place where you start trying to um, earn God's favor, that's wrong. We're not trusting Christ if we're trying to earn God's favor. So we set our minds and our eyes on the things above, and we look to Jesus, and we see that our new covenant is different than the old covenant. And it's distinct, and it's distinct in Christ. Now, we're going to talk more about what this means. According to these verses, there are differences. Now, turn back to Exodus 34. 
So we see those differences, but Exodus 34 is still awesome, okay? Because something's happening with the people and God is bringing them together. God is doing things in their lives. And in fact, um, he is being very, very loving toward them. Very loving. Now, Exodus 34 an extremely important part of these verses is how God refers to himself. So I'd like to just spend some time tonight considering how God refers to himself and his name and how it comes across to his people who desperately need him. The first part of his name is what? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and what? Merciful and gracious. Now, what is the difference between mercy and grace? Growing up, I did not know there was a difference. I just want to tell you all that. I was like, mercy, grace, forgiveness, Jesus, God, it's awesome, it's good. I don't know the difference between those things, but they're probably distinct in some manner. But I didn't know at the time. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Can you say it again? <laughs> Everyone needs to hear that twice. Uh huh. Okay. Okay, so what do we do deserve? We do deserve death. That's right. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness. Unrighteousness suppresses the truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What you're hearing is gospel here, and it's meant to lead you to God. So mercy, God, merciful and gracious. So the mercy is we're not given what we, what we deserve. And why do we deserve death? I just said it, but I want to make sure we hear it. Because we're sinful. And, and is anyone exempt from that? No. So if you're sitting there saying, thank goodness I'm not one of those sinners, you need to hear tonight, yes, you are. And the wages of sin is death. Now, he's, he's merciful in that he doesn't give us what, he, what we deserve. So that's a picture of God holding back his wrath from us. And we, that's propitiation. The wrath of God, is, is, it falls on Jesus. And it was due to us. We deserve it. He didn't deserve it. Now, grace is what? Being given what you don't what? What you don't deserve. Now, what is it that we don't deserve that we're given? And y'all better have like a hundred answers. Yes. 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 We are... Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is what it says in Ephesians. We've been given much. How has he been gracious to Israel? What has he given them? Yes, he has not left just a smudge on the globe where Israel used to be. How else has he been gracious and merciful? And be specific in the examples. Yeah, you were no one and I made you something. Okay, gracious. How else has he been gracious? Yeah. Imagine if you were better than everybody else and perfect and holy. Who am I going to live with? A stiff-necked people. That is grace. He is showing his love with his presence. By the way, you can't do that. You can't. I'm like God. I show you my love with my presence. You're welcome. We don't operate like that. We take God, message, Jesus with us. Um, so, uh, merciful and gracious. How else? There's, there's lots. I want us to dig into this a little bit. Provision that they did not earn. Absolutely. Yeah, protection on their journey. Deliverance from Egypt. 
You have your freedom. You are no longer slaves for 400 years, making bricks without straw, pressed hard. Their cry went up. It was heard by God, and he met them with mercy and grace because that is who he is. He's a God, gracious and merciful. Take joy in the way that your God is. He's so, so good. Now, the next part is what? Great, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Okay, slow to anger. How has he shown that he is slow to anger? They're still around. Yeah, yeah, same answer as you gave earlier. He has not wiped them off the planet. They're still around. He's been very, very slow to anger. Now, what's the difference between slow to anger and I can't make him angry? Yeah, the, the difference is anger. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, we used to have a dog that was slow to anger. That didn't mean that dog can get angry. And uh, then you, you walk carefully there. God is not the same as my dog. I want to make sure that's clear. Um, but uh, slow to anger and not able to be angered is very, very different. What's another way? Like, to take that, that phrase and just boil it down to the way you're called to live and you're called to walk, what's, another, what's a word that we could give that means slow to anger? Patient, exactly. Patient. Now, slow to anger, patient. For those of you who see God as one who only finds favor in smiting people and slamming thunderbolts from heaven upon the heads of the unrighteous, it's good for you to know that God is slow to anger. It's really good for you to know that. Sometimes there's a version, I guess, of the gospel that's shared that is just this God will smite you and leave nothing but a smudge behind and he just enjoys killing people and, and he enjoys bringing wrath and, and he, 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 there's, oh man, you just better tremble. Tremble, tremble, tremble. Slow to anger is, 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 a, is an encouragement to God's people. That, that, uh, well, consider your children. Are your kids encouraged when you're slow to anger? Are they discouraged when you're not slow to anger? Has anyone not been slow to anger this week? I'm guilty. Yeah, Corey, you're, you're just like me. Not slow to anger. Um, yeah, th- this is um, encouraging to know that that's how our God is. He includes it in his name. Romans 2 says that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. His patience is meant to lead you to repentance. Think about that in your parenting. If I'm slow to anger... My, my purpose in that is, is patience that might lead my child to repentance. God informs our parenting in the way that we are as mother and father a lot. And so in my patience with my children, um, if I have no patience, maybe it's because I misunderstand God to some extent. But if I have patience, the, the hope there is that it leads them to repentance, that they can understand the difference between right and wrong, repent, turn from their sin, and move Godward, not just please me and my kingdom and my home, which is my castle. See the difference? Um, as well, Scripture says that when... Got mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, in Romans 2, patience and kindness right there together lead us to repentance. Yet, but, Give it time. But, 
it's working on me more than it's working. That's good. That's good. Yeah. 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 We can certainly be unkind to our own children if, if we're not reflecting the character of God. Um, James 1. Uh, scripture says in a number of different ways that we are wise when we reflect the character of God, that there's wisdom in reflecting the character of God. Um, quiz here. It, was wisdom a created thing? No. No, wisdom was not a created thing. In fact, it says in Genesis that wisdom was with God when he created the earth and the heavens. And so it's really cool when you begin to think of wisdom that we could, we could impart something. We could represent God as image bearers um, when we're wise and, and that wisdom's not a created thing. It's not like time. You know, time's a created thing. One day time will melt back into eternity. Um, but wisdom is something that exists because God exists. And so scripture says that we are wise when we reflect the character of God. And James 1 says that we as image bearers um, are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So when you find yourself struggling with impatience, think about the fact that God's slow to anger. I think it's very, very helpful. It's very, very practical. I'm struggling with being impatient right now. My God is, is, is slow to anger. And, and I should be encouraged by that because I want to be wise and I want to reflect his character. In Proverbs it's really cool reading through Proverbs because you see the effect of godly wisdom and you can see how it plays out in some practical ways. Um, and so just turn to Proverbs 14. We're going to jump on a couple different things in Proverbs briefly, very briefly. Proverbs 14, 29. And for some of y'all, y'all might want to mark these or put a little tab on them. Go back and study them again later and consider, am I applying that? Am I showing the wisdom of God as an image bearer? Or am I misrepresenting God and not bearing his image, but bearing my own? That's the kind of things we want to consider when we're looking at scripture. But Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. It's interesting to me because whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Why are we usually um, not slow to anger with someone and impatient with them? Because you think they're stupid. Yeah, wrong, dumb, self. Yeah, I mean, we, we are, a lot of times we will, we will be very quick to anger and, and, and slow to listen. And we want to speak our mind and we're impatient with people because we think, well, if, if you would stop talking and listen to me, you would know that, um, what it's like to be right. Just listen closely. We can do that. I mean, y'all saw how natural that was for me to say that. And, um, <laughs> um, but whoever slowed anger has great understanding. So it's not great understanding that makes it to where I'm exempt from, from my anger. Um, I, can, I can lord that over you because, because I'm more knowledgeable. And should you be at the mental capacity that I was at, you would understand why I'm so angry with you right now. That's not how it works. In fact, it's the one who's slow to anger who shows great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So that means that if you can't be slow to anger and you have a, t- a hasty temper, what's, what's another way of saying hasty? Quick. So you're quick-tempered. What does that exalt? Self, which is a great way of saying folly. Um, what's another way of saying folly? Foolishness. The opposite of truth, which we're called to be bearers of. Um, so 
take that to mind. Um, a hasty temper exalts folly. So if your deep, deep desire is for people to understand the truth, don't try to accomplish that in a way that's not slow to anger. Proverbs fifteen eighteen. turn there. It's, it should be on the same page, actually. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. What's another way of saying strife? Trouble. What'd you say? Conflict. And what's another way of saying contention? Fighting. So if I'm hot-tempered, I stir that up. Do we want to stir up something bad? No. But what is the way that, that we quiet those kinds of things? Being slow to anger. Um, in, my, in my house growing up, there were four boys. And if you were to go to like a family get-together with our extended family, the thing that all the in-laws, um, uh, my wife, my brother's wife, my other brother's wife, the thing they all seem to observe within minutes is, why, why is it so loud? It is so loud up in this place. Like, like if, if we have, like, I remember friends would come over. It's like, oh, it's Thanksgiving. You're going to have someone to go come to our house. And then it's like, why is it so loud? Everybody's screaming. And one of the rules that we kind of had, um, unwritten rule, of course, but understood by all, was he who speaks the loudest essentially just wins. So, so when you hear stories being told, it's like, yeah, that's good that you're telling a story, but I'm going to tell my own story over here, so y'all keep going. We're gonna... And man, we, you can have a, a room with like 10 different stories going together. My uncles are the loudest people ever. I remember when my grandfather was dying, dying in the hospital. And I get off the elevator, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I know where they are. And I just kind of, because they're, they're, oh, yeah, I remember that. It was good. And they're just all so loud. And, and a lot of times the you know, hot-tempered man stirs up strife, he who, is, who is slow to anger quiets contention. A lot of times when there's conflict, we think, well, whoever can yell the loudest wins, but that's not how you quiet contention. You quiet contention by being cool, calm, collected, and not quick-tempered. Not, not quick-tempered, but slow to anger, and um, you can consider how God does that uh, with us. Proverbs 16.32, just next page over. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, but he who rules his spirit, um, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Um, biblically, it is better to be slow to anger than to exercise your might in a domineering way. Look at Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. We talked about this in the conflict series. When's the last time you overlooked an offense? Um, I remember when I understood wrath, and I understood God's sovereignty, and I understood justice, and I was a new father. That all happened at once. And I remember, like, thinking as my kids were getting older, if I, was, if I overlook any offense, I'm doing a disservice to them as a parent, and all things must be punished. And you end up talking to your two-year-old daughter as if she's a grown man, and it's like, no, no, we do not do that. We, we, that is not okay. And your loving wife, who wins you over by her conduct, um, you know, theoretically, um, says, says, what's wrong? Why are you talking so loudly to the little girl who has no idea what words you're using? Um, but, but here, I mean, overlooking an offense, it's the glory of a person to overlook an offense. 
There's encouragement there that we can do that. And why can we do that? Because good sense makes one slow to anger. And how can one have good sense? Well, you have good sense when you're reflecting the character of your God. Turn back to Exodus 34. I knew that was going to happen. We would spend most of our time considering God's name. And we're not done. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, now it's your turn. Room full of professing believers, at least in large part. How does that reality affect you as a believer? Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Never leaves you, even though you deserve to be left. It never leaves you even when you feel like you've been left. Yes, claiming his promises is something that you can always do. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that encouraging that God's not fickle? Um, heard someone explain the like double dutch. It's like I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. It's not the way with God. He's not fickle. It's it's not it's not him sitting there waiting just to yeah okay yeah that was good. You helped that person cross the street. Oh what what was that thought? It's not how he works. He he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, that should be an encouragement to us because that makes it to where there's never a time where we can't go to God. There's times where God feels distant. I've had times in my life where I feel like maybe he's hiding his face from me, where it's distant, but I can, even in those times, I stand on the reality, which is what he wants us to do in those times, to know that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We can claim who he is to him. God, you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Please make your presence clear to me. Come near, because I care about being close to you. That's how the child of God moves in response to how God reveals himself keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The work that God does for us and against our sin is thorough. It's not partial. He doesn't just sort of take care of your sin problem. He completely takes care of your sin problem. And the impact of such steadfastness is that for any and all of you, no matter what is in your past, God offers himself to you, forgiving you, if you repent and believe in Christ. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Uh-oh. I thought he was steadfast in love. What am I doing here? Seems different. What do you think this means? Who will by no means clear the guilty? He's just. You don't flaunt God's justice in his face. Like with my kids, um, I'll say, Ella, don't touch Olivia. And that will usually lead Olivia to go and like get as close as she can and try to really mess with her and upset her. And Ella's like, oh man, I can't touch you. But that's not how it is with God. Oh, you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Watch this sin. No, no, he will by no means clear the guilty. He's perfectly just. So in Romans, Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
And then in, in Romans, it's called a diatribe. And it's, it's, it sounds like a person who's potentially crazy and they're talking to themselves and they're asking questions that they're answering themselves as if they're someone they're having the conversation. That's what a diatribe is. And so he's asking these questions. Well, if this is the case, what about this? Well, if that's true, then what about this? Well, what should I do over here? And how, how does that play in? Well, if I do that, then should I do this? And one of the questions he asks, he says, if where I send grace abounds, should we sin so that grace abounds? Should we send more? And his response to his own question is, by no means. Do you know why he says by no means? Because he will by no means clear the guilty. See that? For those who are in Christ, those who are responding faithfully to what he has called you to, he, he's made the change. The, uh, I read it in, a, uh, in something by Tim Keller this week that the verdict is what, is what causes the, the action in your life. Um, we usually think we do something and, okay, God, now are you pleased with me? Okay, I did this. What about now are you pleased with me? And he's saying, no, no, you're mine. Now go live in a manner that's pleasing to me. And so here, um, he will by no means clear the guilty. And in visiting the iniquity on future generations, we find that there's undoubtedly an effect of our sin um, on our offspring. Um, that's why we're called to keep an eye to future generations and recount to them the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Throughout the Psalms, like Psalm 78, I think in Isaiah 40 as well, it talks about making sure that the future generations don't miss out on all this, on what God has done. We recount his deeds and show how, how wonderful he has been to generations. Verses 8 and 9 say, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take, um, and take us for your inheritance. Um, Calvin states, For thus does God, when he reveals himself, immediately ravish the godly into such admiration of him that there is no time for delay. Worship is a response to God revealing himself to us. And when God reveals himself to someone in the way that he reveals himself to Moses, it is appropriate that Moses quickly bowed his head. When you hear things about God, the appropriate response is worship. The appropriate response is, that, that means something. I need, I, need to, I need to thank him. I need to pray. I need to um, offer up praise to his name. I need to change my life and live a life of worship. Some of y'all tonight, the way that you do what Moses did, quickly bowed his head, you need to be slow to anger. You need to be more merciful and gracious. You need to be more gentle. You need to apply the wisdom of God and show that it is good. You need to represent your God as an image bearer. But it takes a response. And so I love the way he says it. Thus does God, when he reveals himself, immediately ravish the godly into such admiration of him that there's no time for delay. Um, interestingly, it's obvious that they don't earn God's favor. Has Israel earned God's favor at this point? No. No, 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 no. Israel has not earned God's favor. In case you've been asleep for 33 chapters of Exodus, Israel has not earned God's favor. Um, what's happening here is, is there's only one hope for them, and their hope is to find favor. There's a difference between finding favor with the Lord and earning favor with the Lord. It said that Noah found favor. Guess what? Noah was a sinner. You see what happens after the flood? Where'd they find Noah? Passed out, drunk, and naked in his tent. That's like hillbilly drunkenness. Like, seriously, God wiped everyone out, and, and, and you were saved through this ark that you built when you had never seen rain because God talked to you 
And then after the flood, when you come out and you're like, everyone else is dead and we're alive, he gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. Did he earn God's favor? No. He found favor with the Lord. The Lord chose to use the foolish to confound the wise yet again. And that is how it is here with Moses and and the nation of Israel. They have no hope in earning his favor, but their hope is to find favor with him that he might dwell in their midst, thereby making them distinct and and moving the, the good news of him through that people. Look at verse 10. And he said, God said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among them whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. We're going to close on that. God just said, hey, I'm about to do something awesome. And if that doesn't get your attention, I don't really know what will I mean, we use that term so flippantly. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. That's an awesome shirt. Thanks. Those are awesome shoes. Um, Awesome. When God says, I, the creator of all things created, who have already done all the plagues, freed you from the most powerful nation, like they all died in the Red Sea, and not one of you died, and I brought you out, and I've blessed you abundantly. Hey, y'all, watch. Now I'm about to do some awesome things. So that's where we'll end tonight, and we'll pick up... uh, Either next week or the week after. Not sure how it's going to play out. Maybe you just finish 34 next week. Who knows? And, um, and uh, we'll go from there. So let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, you are very, very good to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the blessings that we have in Christ and how in this new covenant, um, something that we didn't get to tonight, that the, the veil is gone, that we have boldness in the Spirit, and that we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another because of the way you have been towards us, slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. We love you so much, Lord. I really pray that we would leave here as worshipers responding to the way that God has revealed himself to us. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.